I want to revisit an experience that uh, I've told you about before uh, that my wife, and ha- my wife and I had almost two decades ago when we decided that we would read to each other out loud the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And we came to a certain point in the story where just after the two tiny little heroes, Sam and Frodo, had been rescued from the fires of Mount Doom and did not know that their friend, Wizard Gandalf, uh, had actually been saved and was really alive when the story reads this way. But Sam lay back and stared with an open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he couldn't answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And at that moment, I fell to pieces. Like Ginger will tell you, I couldn't even finish the passage. I was weeping so hard at that moment. And that wouldn't mean much to anyone except for the fact that that never happens. I'm just not kind of wired emotionally in that way, but I've spent years trying to figure out, what was that? (laughs) What just happened to me? Well, I want to start a series uh, this particular, for the next six weeks this summer before the students get back, that is focused on a question that if you know me, it's going to sound a little bit strange because I'm concerned, I'm concerned about how disinterested we are in our Bibles. You know what? That's not fair. I'm concerned with my disinterest in the Bible, Um, at least in the way in which I see myself being sort of captured by other books that I read, but I'm often not by the Bible. You're welcome to label me as unspiritual if you like. I would tell you that you don't know the half of it. But I also don't think that I'm alone. I don't think I'm by myself in this sort of feeling. But my premise is that the reason why we lack oftentimes the energy to dive into God's Word in the way in which we probably should is because we don't know what we're reading The best illustration I could come up with was what it was like when I got into my classes at the beginning of school, whether it was high school or college. You know, the teacher would hand me a textbook, and I had my assignments, and I would would sit down to do my first assignment. I would open up, and I would start to read, and it would take about 30 seconds before I was bored out of my mind. And because I had no idea what I was reading, was was this like a a, a particular uh, argument for a point of view, was... Was I reading some objective discourse on some matter of science? Was I reading sort of an opinion page about some historical matters? In other words, I didn't have a frame of reference to know what I was reading. But of course, somewhere, it always took me half the semester, three-fourths of the semester, to figure out what that doggone textbook was about. (laughs) And finally, I would read it to a little more effect, you see? I want to suggest to you in a little six-week series that we, we struggle with the same way with the Bible because we don't realize that fundamentally the Bible is a story. It's a story. And if you don't read it that way, it's going to confuse you. Or worse, it's going to bore you. And I hope that you've begun to do a little bit of thinking about how you read the Bible. And for the sake of this moment, I'm not asking whether you read the Bible, but how you do. For some people, they pick up the Bible looking for a, for a rule book of like truths for living, how to live a successful life. 
Some people pick up the Bible as if it's a secret message to decode, that you're supposed to find the mystery behind the message. Other people read the Bible hoping to find a science textbook that will somehow uh, uh, square their message from what we hear from the intelligentsia. But when you read the Bible, though, as a story, I'm suggesting, you actually begin to unlock the meaning in a way in which you couldn't so otherwise. And you see it from the very beginning and opening chapters of Genesis, which is what we're going to study. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3 and see what is the setting of the Bible. Every good story has a setting. We're going to look at the main characters of the Bible. We're going to look at the conflict in the plot as well as its resolution, all in the first three chapters. And the goal, though, is to be engaged with the Word of God in a way that will grab us in the same way in which Tolkien grabbed me through reading The Lord of the Rings. Because my premise is that the degree to which you see the Bible as a story, you'll either find it reading it interesting or you'll find it dull. And there's just no way that God's revelation to his people could ever be dull. So I want to unpack this this morning by looking at three things. Number one, I want to see the power of story in our lives. Number two, the original story as it comes to us in verses one and two. And then thirdly and finally, the mission of the story that comes in verse 28. So let's start, first of all, on the power of story. My, the first thing that I feel like I need to establish is that stories are really what are churning the action, both externally and internally, of your life. That's my premise. And I've been collecting quotes from really smart people for like the last two decades on this, ever since this first grabbed me, that I simply want to present to you this morning. Let me read you a couple of these. The first one's from a New Testament theologian who says this. He says, stories are one of the most basic modes of human life. It is not the case that we perform random acts and then later try to make sense of them. Human life can be seen as grounded in and constituted by the implicit and explicit stories which human beings tell to themselves and to each other. And when we examine how stories work as a basic constituent of human life in relation to other stories, we find that human beings tell stories because this is how we perceive and even how we relate to the entire world around us. Does that feel overstated to you? Uh, let me try another one. It's a guy named Roy Anker who wrote a book called Catching Light, Looking for God in the Movies, who says that it's this instinct for story that makes movies and television shows as popular as they are for us today. He says, we watch movies because we still have, running full force through us, the human appetite for a story. On the most fundamental level, there's the pure pleasure of being told a story and of entertaining its possibilities and its, its mystery and its power. For some reason, we relish the sensation of losing ourselves in a tale of some kind, of being seduced away into another sort of reality, at least for a time. He goes on to say that not only is it another sort of reality, but what if it is the reality, the real reality? If you're confused by that, just hang on. Finally, there's Eugene Peterson, late professor of practical theology at Regents College, who says this in his book, uh, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He says, story is the most natural way of enlarging and deepening our sense of reality. And then, not only that, it enlists us as participants in it. Stories open doors to areas or aspects of life 
that we didn't even know were there or had quit noticing out of simple overfamiliarity, or suppose they were out of bounds to us. And then they welcome us in. Listen to this. Stories are verbal acts of hospitality. See what he's saying? He's saying one of the ways in which you enter in to the truth that God is wanting to present to you in his word is by the realization that it comes to us as the story. So what's being suggested here is that you are looking right now at your world through the context of a story, either being told by you or being told to you, depending on what kind of person you are. And so for that reason, stories have this amazing power to to move us. They can thrill us. Sometimes they depress us. But in the end, they end up being the thing that changes us. You know, stories can, can upset your life, but it can also reset your life in many ways. And what I've come to believe is that the Bible teaches that the reason why story moves us in this way is because reality is a story. Because the Bible itself is a story. History, human behavior, human actions from God's point of view is moving towards something. It's a drama that's being enacted that has the glory of God as its central feature. And for that reason, the instinct for story is sort of mapped onto our spiritual DNA. You can't avoid it. You can't get away from it. I realize some of you struggle with this, but but when was the last time you had a conversation with someone who legitimately and straight up disagreed with you about your embrace of Christianity, or even your, even your fascination with Christianity. And perhaps you felt yourself sort of like, you know, sort of unease. Okay, okay, okay. Let me remember my theology. What was that thing that I was supposed to say? And, and how, did, how did that exegesis go? And oftentimes those explanations, they just fall on deaf ears. But have you noticed how much they pay attention when you stop and just simply start talking about how God has transformed your life? In other words, you begin to tell how it was that God began to sort of interrupt, meet, and completely transform your story. Why is that more effective? Well, because it's part of God's common grace that he gives sort of us to relate to those that are outside the faith. We share a love of stories. They want to know that there's a point to it all. You know, a number of years ago, we all had to endure, at least I did, the the, the craze that went around about the... uh, the Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown. Well, you know, one of the things about the, the, the information that was put out in those books is they were, all of the claims about how that we got the Bible that we have, the sort of transmission of text, were completely dismissed by anyone who had half an ounce of knowledge about the textual transmission of the Bible and how we came about to where we were. It was drivel that came out of those books. And yet, I could barely... Have, I could barely go, talk two steps when I was on campus without someone asking the question, have you read the Da Vinci Code? I mean, you're about this whole Bible thing. Do you realize blah, 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 blah? Why was that so compelling when all of the intelligent people, not just from conservative sides, but even from liberal sides, said that it was silly? You want to know why? Because it was wrapped in a story. And story is powerful to us. It moves us. It works on us. Look, it's going to be very important for you if, if, you are, if you're trying to follow Jesus to realize where you are in time. We live in a time sort of depending on what age or kind of what your disposition is where you can say that there's a modernist spirit. Uh, the modern mind sort of looked at the world and realized that you could sum it up with these, 
with these ideas, concepts, abstract propositions that once listed in proper order and proper uh, 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 clarity, you just adopted these or something or signed off on them and therefore you were a spiritual person. You're religious. Oh, what are your set of doctrines? Well, here they are. That's a modernist mindset. But somewhere around the 80s or the 90s or so, there began to be kind of a cultural rejection of that idea, what we might call the postmodern mindset, where they looked at it and said, you know, there actually are no sort of ideas out there that sort of exist outside of just your experience. All you have is just your story. We have things, and here's the phrase, that are true for you, which is actually a hilarious phrase if you really think about it. And they said, all you really are is just your story. So whether you're a modernist or a postmodernist this morning, which of those is true? Is the Bible sort of a set of abstract sort of truths that sort of sit out there in our minds only? Or is it sort of wrapped in a story? And the answer is, of course it's both. Yes, the Bible comes to us with the essence of something that's abstract and absolute, namely the doctrine of God. But you know how that comes to us, though? It is transported to us in the form of a story. That's how it's arranged. That's how it's presented to us. And the great claim of Christianity is that this story that God has told, told, you ready? It's a true story. That's the magic. And as it turns out, that little notion, that little notion of the Bible being a story and human history being a story was the thing that brought C.S. Lewis to Jesus. He became a Christian on that one little notion. And he talks about it in a little essay he wrote called Myth Became Fact in his little collection of essays called God in the Dock. Here's what he says. He says, the heart of Christianity is a story which is also a fact. The old story of the dying God without ceasing to be story comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the heart of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place followed by definable historical consequences. But by becoming fact, it doesn't cease to be a story. And that is the miracle. Listen to this. This was the, this was the one that threw me off. He says, I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from stories that they did not believe than from the very religion that they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the story, though fact it has become, with the same imaginative embrace with which we accord to all other stories. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. <laughs> you see what he's saying? Lewis was converted by this fact that he knew that the sort, sort of ancient, oftentimes Nordic myths that he was studying while he was at Oxford, moved him. They stirred up nobility in him. He wanted to do right as he read and digested these stories. But it was Tolkien who took him by the hand and said, look, Lewis, the gospel has not sort of rejected all those old stories. It's actually hallowed them because this story is the true story, the real story. And all these other stories are just echoing off of memory traces. It's a fascinating way of looking at the world. And it completely changed uh, the way in which uh, Lewis uh, apprehended the world. The change for me happened when I had daughters. When I tell you that I had daughters that were obsessed with being princesses, it, it would be hard for me to over-exaggerate it. When I tell you that we had cases and cases of Barbies, uh, it, 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 yeah, I can't overstate Like, There's no way to talk about how many Barbies we had. We had a lot of Barbies. But suddenly I realized, after reading Lewis and Tolkien and some others, 
I suddenly realized that they're believing a true story. There really is a brave knight that will ride in on a horse and rescue them and take them away to live in paradise. It really is true. And one of the joys of parenting is to be able to take those notions as they occur quite naturally in your children and share the gospel with them. That story's true. That actually really happened. And it really has happened. Let me tell you the real story behind it. It's called evangelism. That's how we do that. So that's the power of story. Now look, I realize for a lot of you are saying, are we going to talk about the text here? But please, my problem is with the way we approach the text. And if we don't talk about that, then you're going to read this through the grid that you've always read it. And I'm trying to affect your grid this morning. But I've got to bring to point two, which is the original story. <laughs> okay, Les, so what is the story here? Well, you got it right there in verses one and two. I love that our story begins in the way in which most great stories begin. How do great stories begin? Once upon a time. Every story begins with a reference to time, and so does Genesis 1. Look what it says. In the beginning, which says to us that everything started. The world was launched. Something happened. There's been, and I realize there's a lot of discussion people want to have over whether or not Genesis 1 represents real, actual history. And the reason why they struggle with that is, is because there are clearly some, poetical may not be the right word, but clearly some artistic uh, 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 aspects that are being presented to us in Genesis chapter 1. But why are those things always mutually exclusive in the modern slash postmodern mind? Just because something comes to us in an artistic way does not mean that it didn't really happen. Those are not mutually exclusive. But what I want you to notice is what this story is going to be about. And it starts there, beginning in chaos. Look what it says in verse 2. The earth was two things. This is worth underlining. It was formless. And second of all, it was void. Why was it formless? Well, it was formless because it was chaotic. There was no order to creation. It was void, secondly, because it was empty. It was meaningless. It wasn't full of any meaning. The drama, though, begins at that very point, doesn't it? Because then it says, but the Spirit of God was what? It was hovering. There's formlessness, but the Spirit is hovering. There is void, but the Spirit is hovering. And so my submission to you this morning is this right out of the gate. You get the central drama of the whole Bible right there in that one verse. Because we are talking about a God. We are hearing the story about a God who marches into chaos and into emptiness and he hovers. That's the story. Things are bad, but God is hovering was the message. Think about, think about these Israelites to whom Moses is originally writing these stories. They have just launched themselves from the chaos that was Egypt and all of the dehumanization of slavery to go where? Into the void of the wilderness and Mount Sinai. What could be more important for them to have heard at that moment than the Spirit of God has always been in the business of hovering? But the narrative goes on, to, on as we find out to see that God's hovering results in this great symphony of creation and order and beauty and life. So in the first three days, we see God dealing with the problem of formlessness by creating three forms. Day one, he has light and dark. Day two, he does land and air. Day three, he does dry land and plants. Well, then in the latter three days, four, five, and six, he deals with the void by filling up those spaces with things so that light and dark get filled up on day four with sun and moon. Land and air get filled up on day five with birds and fish. 
And then finally, dry land and plants get filled up on day six with animals and man. See what God's doing? The business of God's universe is to march into chaos and bring order and beauty and light where there is so much disorder and ugliness and dark. And you saw it from the opening verses. Speaking of J.R. Tolkien, he's got a letter that he wrote to his son about whether or not the Garden of Eden was really existed. I love his answer when he's writing to him. He says, you know, I don't really feel ashamed or dubious on the Garden of Eden story. It doesn't have the same historicity as the New Testament, which are virtually contemporary documents. Even, and we're so far separated from Genesis that we really don't know how many sad, exiled generations from the fall. But certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentleness and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Ooh, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, you better believe there was an Eden. And you better believe that we all long to get back there. That's what we're hoping for. And because of that, even the moments where you experience the greatest joys of holding your child, of feeling success in your job, of of feeling a sense of satisfaction, aren't they all mixed? And there's a lonely little voice that looks up and says, but it's not enough. That's what Tolkien's talking about. He's saying that that's that sense of exile that we've had ever since we were sort of cast out from the garden. So the power of story, that's the original story, number two. But number three, we finally see the mission of the story. Because here's what I want you to notice. This story is still true. Nothing has changed in terms of God's design for the purpose of creation. God is a king who is establishing his kingdom. And he has given his human representatives, us, who live for his glory in this theater of creation, a creation mandate is how the theologians will put it. This is why I had Johnny read verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves in the, in the, in the earth, in the ground. You see what he's saying? He's saying your task is twofold. Number one, I want you to mine the universe for all of the hidden potentials that I've hidden in it. And number two, I want you to march into places wherever there is chaos to be found and bring order to make it lovely and beautiful. That's your mission. In other words, it is God's design for his story to be your story. That is the way he's laying this out. That's a different way of reading the Bible, by the way. Because on the one hand, he says, I want you to come. What a great remedy to a culture that is so bored with itself. It's pathetic. I want you to get a sense that I've asked you to do something. You have a meaning. You have a purpose this morning, whoever you are. And that is to go out and begin to unwrap this present that is the created order, which God says I have invested with an endless amount of potentiality, and I want you to uncover it for my glory. That's why you're here. A task, by the way, which I don't think there's any biblical evidence to say we won't continue to do in heaven. What are we going to do in heaven? What will we do while we're up there? I don't know. Continue to find all the stuff he's put out there for us in this infinite universe. Keep trying to find the end of it. We're not going to find the end of it. Secondly, though, it means that we've got to recover a sense of the purpose of our salvation. I realize that it's very easy in religious contexts like this to think about me being a Christian 
as having a certain reason. Maybe, maybe for some of us that reason is, um, you know, so, so that I can get my guilty neuroses healed. I just want to feel better. For other people, it's like, well, I become a Christian so that I can share it with other people and get as many people on that good old gospel ship so we go to heaven when we die. Now, neither of those things are wrong, but I honestly think our calling is so much larger than that because every Christian's mighty mission is to actually advance this kingdom throughout the earth. A kingdom which is all about the Spirit hovering. And because the Spirit's hovering, it's healing. That's why you are here, Christian, is that we are the ones who incarnate ourselves in the midst of chaos. And God promises that when you are there, I'll be there with you so that just your mere presence is going to bring healing to the people around you. It's different. That's a different kind of mission. So it actually turns out that my sort of getting weepy in the Lord of the Rings started a little bit earlier than that scene where, uh, with uh, Sam looking at Gandalf for the first time. And it took place actually in the chapters before where the great war is sort of raging. And some of the most beloved characters in the book uh, are wounded and dying in the houses of healing, one of which is the son of the city's uh, steward. But the wizard Gandalf knows exactly what to do. He instructs the attendants to go find the true king whose name uh, is Aragorn. And here's what he says. Then Gandalf said, let us not stay at the door for the time is urgent. Let us enter. For it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. Thus spoke Lorith, the wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are hands of a healer. So shall the rightful king be known. And I would add to that, so will the people who follow after their God be known as well. You become a person with healing in your hands. These people have learned that no matter where there's chaos, I'm there to hover. I'm there to be a part. I'm there to incarnate. That is what the Bible is about. That is its story from the opening pages. And it reminds me so much of when I was in seminary. And we would be very devious when we would preach out in small country churches because we always looked for the dear old ladies who would take us to their houses for lunch afterwards. Yes, ma'am, I'd love to go to lunch because it was always the best meal you had all week. But sometime during that sweet meal, she would, oftentimes she would look over and she would say, now, so let's tell me, what is your story? Hey, can I ask you that question this morning? What is your story? Here in the summer of 2019, <laughs> how do you understand your place in this world? What's happening to you? Better yet, why is it happening to you? What is your reason to be here? Because there's a Bible on your desk. <laughs> or on your shelf, or on your electronic device, wherever, that is waiting to spin a tale. <laughs> a tale that begins in really heartbreaking humility on the one hand, but then finishes out with the flourishing of all of God's people. And perhaps if we really believe that that's what the story was about, maybe we'd consider it more often. Consider that this summer an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you allow us that grace that only your spirit can give us of being able to see what we are believing, what story we are listening to even right now as we talk. What are we doing? Where are we? How are we understanding our lives? Because Father, we have missed it so often, but we pray that in our study through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this summer, 
we might get a glimpse at how you view the world, how you view us, and that there might be a miracle of transformation in our hearts because we sat down and we said to you, Daddy, tell us again. Tell us the story again. Just one more time before we ask you, Jesus.